Hello, heroes, and welcome to the first episode of Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dorbrock. Before we jump into the interview, I would like to take a minute to do a little introduction, both for myself and for the show. Um, There's a lot of new voices joining the One Shot Network, like Alex Roberts and Jim McClure, and they have an excellent backlog of shows that you can go listen to, but you probably haven't met me yet. So I thought it would be a good idea to sort of introduce myself a little bit and what I'm hoping to do here with Modifier as we get to know each other. So I started playing role-playing games um, over well over 10 years ago, but with such an infrequency and um, kind of a, a smallness of scope, to be honest, that I still feel like a relative newcomer to the whole scene. And so this is a little bit of my own journey in exploring new things and new ways to approach games uh, uh, mixed in with everything else. Um, but I, I do play and enjoy lots of board games and video games. And um, I'm a visual artist and animation student. And my focus is on interactive storytelling, uh, which is a snooty academic way of saying games, pretty much. So uh, I do love games and the stories they can tell in all of their forms. And I am so excited to see how people manipulate that. But ever since I was little, my heart has belonged to stories and storytelling. Um, I, I was drawn to role-playing games because of those those story possibilities, the, the storytelling possibilities. And Modifier is all about how people build and adapt those systems to tell their best stories. My aim for this show is to share a creator's process and hopefully inspire more heroes to try modifying their own games. I see this show as a conversation, not just between myself and my guest, but across the the broader gaming community. I, I hope that this will be a chance for creators to express their process and their intent uh, when they make their games, and for everyone else out there to ask all the questions they can think of about the their process and what it was like, and to share their own experiences doing similar projects or completely different projects, because we don't create our best work in a vacuum. And if you're not already engaging with me and Modifier and the One Shot Network on any of our various social media platforms, uh, we have lots of fun on Twitter.com. You you should be. Come hang out. This show is for you guys. So with all of that said, this first episode is a little bit different. I sat down with Elsa S. Henry and discussed a broader subject in relation to modifying games, accessibility. Elsa and I are both disabled gamers, and Elsa is doing incredible work when it comes to making games more inclusive and accessible for all players. We also talk about her game Dead Scare, Daredevil, Hamilton, and more. Let's get to it. I'm joined today by the inimitable, the original Elsa S. Henry. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show, Elsa. Hi. Um, really glad to be here. Yeah, well, we're glad to have you. Uh, what we're talking about today is how to make games accessible. So modifying games uh, that exist or that you're working on or that, you know, some of our heroes may be building from the ground up uh, to be playable by everybody. Um, and this is something that I know you have a lot of experience in. That's that's why you're here. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your your history with games so far, your experience with that sort of thing? Sure. I mean, it's funny. This has sort of become my job. Uh, it didn't set out that way. Um, but I've been gaming since I was a kid. Um, my first 
the game that I guess people associate with gaming games is uh, Magic the Gathering. And mm-hmm. I, I've always been low vision. Uh, I'm, for those of you who are listening who don't know, I'm a half-blind, half-deaf gamer. Uh, so when I started playing Magic, all of the numbers and the letters were too small for me to read. Yeah. So we had to modify my cards. So I've been hacking games since I was about seven. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. awesome. I'm I'm really interested that you brought up Magic as one of the first games. That's something that um my my game group likes to play and I I just can't do it cuz I I get so frustrated not knowing what is happening like even in front of me on the table and and more so what's happening in front of them on the table that to hold all of that in in my head or to be to hope to remember any you know any portion of what these magic cards say on them is is such a frustrating experience. Um, well, so and this is back when my site was slightly better. Mm-hmm. I can't play Magic anymore. Um, just because, like you say, now it's like I have to put my nose directly up to the card mm-hmm. to read it. And so seeing what other people have out there is not going to happen, especially not if I were playing competitively. Oh. Um, I have had thoughts about ways to make low vision magic possible, but that's something sort of more down the road. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, we'll have to revisit this in, in the future. I'm, I'm definitely curious. <laughs> well, I think we could guinea pig it together. Okay, yeah, there you go. There... <laughs> that sounds good, because it's, it's such a popular and pervasive game that it, it, it is. it's kind of a bummer that, you know, it's, some, it's, it's a, such a big thing that we're missing. Um, it is. You know, one way that I actually, I got all excited in Teary, um, have you played Hearthstone? Yes. Yeah, Hearthstone is a little bit like Magic, and it was kind of the first time that I had that experience of play mm-hmm. in, you know, 20 years. And so I got really excited when I played it for the first time. I was like, it's like Magic. It's not Magic, but it's kind of like it, and I can play it. So yeah. if only Hearthstone were something I could play with my friends rather than strangers on the Internet. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, going back to your initial question, my my work is sort of consulting with people who are making games to help them make their games more accessible. But I also, when I publish my own games, I make sure that sort of the, the intrinsic accessibility model is already in place. Awesome. Yeah. And that's definitely something that we're going to touch on here real shortly. You know, everything that I do has to be accessible because I made it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, no, that's great. That's that's excellent. We need more more of that. <laughs> so you you mentioned that you have um, a couple of different types of disability: the the vision, the low vision, and hearing impairment, and things like that. Are there other than like trying to see magic cards across the table? Are there particular obstacles that you have encountered when gaming? I think it's really easy for people to imagine the the visual obstacles or maybe that's just me my own personal bias um are there are there any obstacles related to the to the hearing well it, you know this is this is the thing where i always sound like a killjoy <laughs> i i hate doing that but at the same time it's true one of the hardest things for me when i'm at a gaming table is um side chatter oh for me i can only filter out so much noise Okay. So if people are talking next to me and I'm trying to hear what the GM is saying, I can't I, I can't focus 
on the GM because it's always possible that I won't hear them. I get a lot of stuff, like I'll be at a con game and people will be chattering next to me. I'll be like, hey, can we um, we focus? Because I can't hear the GM. This is part of why I only GM con games. I don't really play in them very often. Okay. Because I tend to be the person who's like, can everybody please shut up? <laughs> But the, you know what? That it you might feel like a killjoy, but um, I wonder how many other people you end up playing with are kind of thinking the same thing. Yeah, it's true. Um, so you know, there's that. Uh, I would also say that I mean, yes, the low vision stuff is at least somewhat easier to understand. Mm-hmm. But it's by the same token, you know, it's I, I have a lot of gamers who will you know say, oh, hey, my character sheet is low vision friendly, and then I look at it and it's you know. <laughs> Font. Oh no. Like, no! It's not actually. 12 point font is the standard. Everything you have is sans serif font, and sans serif font is not low vision friendly. Mm, good to know. Lowercase l's and uppercase i's look exactly the same to people who have to use bifocals. Oh, there you go. A, a good note for any uh, aspiring or current designers who are listening. Font choices definitely matter. They uh, do. Um, font choices matter, and it, it, just think about it. Like, if you were to show your 80-year-old grandma something and she wouldn't be able to read it, then I probably can. And I think a lot of this really is just people not realizing that there are people our age mm-hmm. who have these issues. And that comes from the way that we've socialized disability and the way that disability is portrayed in the media, the way that it's portrayed in education, it's not a young people's problem. Oh, absolutely. Almost a child. Children yeah. with disabilities get get paid attention to, and old people with disabilities get paid attention to, and everybody in the middle doesn't exist until you get pointed out. It's it's really good that you bring that up. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there was a project I was working on a couple of years ago uh, that was focusing more on accessibility on the internet. Um, and one of the things that we pointed to was there's um, some really good statistics about how many people will experience a disability in their in their lifetime because of course disabilities can be temporary as as well as permanent and i i want to say it's like at least a quarter of the population are currently some type of disabled or ha- are experiencing some type of disability at at any given point um yeah. of course it, it goes up when you're older and, and things like that um and it's it's good to a acknowledge that such a huge portion of the population are experiencing this and and be that making these types of um, considerations when you're designing a game, making things more accessible, you're not only making it accessible for somebody who has a disability, but you may be making it accessible for, for someone else for, for reasons that you haven't even considered. Right. Well, and I also think that there's a certain level of um, trying to remember exactly how, how someone put this, but it's Disability is really the only marginalized group that you can join. Mm. Like, you can't, you know, you can convert to a religion that is considered marginalized. For example, you can convert to being a Muslim, and then you will potentially face Islamophobia. You can convert to Judaism, and you might experience anti-Semitism. But disability is the only one where if you have... If you join a margin, the marginalized group known as disability, you will experience some of the discrimination that people with disabilities face on a regular basis. Yeah. 
So watch out, you might be next. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that this is a threat. Uh, not threat. Not that I am threatening to take away your sight because no, I no. can't do that no. yet. Yeah. <laughs> it also doesn't have that much power quite, quite yet. No, they're trying to stop me from ascending to having superpowers. Don't you already? Or is that under wraps? Are we not talking about that? <laughs> I just put my finger up my lips and said... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, well, speaking of the, the superpowers of yours that we, we can talk about and are talking about, um, I'm going to ask you the, the hard version of this question first. We're going we're gonna to start this out on, on hard mode. Because our show is called Modifier. So I want to run a game. I want to start an, a Pathfinder game or a D&D game or something that is published and established and is a, is a game that exists and people play it. How do I make that accessible for people? What, what are my options for aids or tools or um, even, even just play style things that I can take into consideration? Well, it depends. first of all, if you have a player with a disability, we're assuming that's why you're hacking the game, mm-hmm. or if you're a player with a disability for your, yourself, the first thing you need to think about is how that disability interacts with the game. So if it's Dungeons & Dragons, you need to think about the dice, you need to think about hit points, and you need to think about armor. And if you're using miniatures, you need to think about that too, or maps. So there's a lot of moving pieces in D&D, which is why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> also, because I'll be writing about this in Dragon Magazine. Oh, cool. Yeah, uh, that got announced a couple days ago. I'm going to be in Dragon Magazine in February talking about disability. Oh, awesome. Okay, we're going to have to link to that in the show notes. Uh, I think this show is coming out in January sometime. So um, if, if there isn't already a link, we'll, uh, we'll make sure there is one retroactively. Very cool. Remind me, because I haven't played D&D in probably six years, what dice do we use for D&D? Uh, D20s, um, D6, D10, D8, I think yep. sometimes D12 if you're like a yeah. or something. Yeah, so this is my Braille D20. Yes, all right. You guys cannot see this, um, but it is, what, like bigger than a golf ball? Um, well, it's about the size. It's yeah, it is bigger than a golf ball. It also fits in my palm. Like I'm actually palming it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what it sounds like when I roll it. <laughs> it's a small brick. <laughs> also, I just rolled a two. Oh no! So, you know that that was not good. Um, fortunately, I'm not fighting anything right now. Yeah, but right. uh. You know, rolling a, D tw- a large D20 is a lot. Mm-hmm. So if you want the physical experience of rolling dice and you're playing with a group that is patient about dice rolls, that's great. But if you're not, then maybe it's better to use an online dice roller if you're low vision and you're playing D&D. Cool. And that's something that, uh, you know, even when you're playing in person, you can have a laptop, or I know there are smartphone apps or things like that that you can use that, that make the numbers pretty big, and, and it's easy to share with the people at your table, too. Absolutely. Well, and also, I think it's interesting to note that, like, any any of those apps, it also helps because you can do a lot of dice rolls at once, mm-hmm. whereas if you have a Braille D20 or if you have uh, one of my large print 
dice. This is my D12. Yeah, they're also very big. Yeah, I have large print dice. Sounds a little bit less like I'm throwing a brick. (laughs) Just slightly. But, you know, I still only have so much space in my hands to throw dice. So if I'm rolling with the dice pool, it's going to take me longer to roll. Yeah, and I I got to hold that braille die briefly, and the corners are very sharp, aren't they? Like, are. Go ahead. Uh, I was asking, do you know if that was 3D printed or something? I was trying to get a good look at it. It just it seems so strange. Yeah, it is 3D printed. Um, they just did another Kickstarter for those. I guess they're getting a new printer, and hopefully they'll be able to make them a bit lighter next time. Yeah, ra- round the corners just a little bit. I can only imagine trying to hold. Even just one of those is, is is a danger to your hands. It is. Well, and I mean, these are some of the issues that you face if you're a blind, a blind gamer. But the one that I've always had the most trouble with is the hit points. Because how do you make hit points accessible? Well, a, um, a blind D&D player in Sweden actually came up with an idea for this that I really like. Uh, his name is Makan Andersson, mm-hmm. and he um, he's on Twitter. But what he does is he has two small bowls, like, you know, kitchen prep bowls. Mm-hmm. And he puts a bunch of marbles or little glass counters in one bowl. And that's mm-hmm. how many hit points he has. And then when he loses a hit point, he moves the little mar- mar- marble counter into the other bowl. Okay. So he can tactfully feel how many hit points he has in the bowl. That's really cool. You just, just don't get the bowls mixed up. <laughs> Right, but I mean, yeah. As you know, if you're low vision, you learn placement mm. pretty quickly. You you have a certain. I have terrible spatial skills. I'm you know not super great with finding things, but if I put things down somewhere, I know what my spatial relationships are because I did them. So that's one way to solve the hit points problem, and you can apply that to other games too. Personally, I've been playing a lot of Apocalypse World and Fate Core because I find both of them to be at least a little bit more vision friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, Fate Core specifically because the dice are fully tactile. Oh, okay. Yeah. You need to be able to see to play with these. Because they're. I'm trying to find one. I have too many dice inside of my Totoro. <laughs> and I have a Totoro dice bag. Oh, he's so cute. Mm-hmm. The best place to keep dice is in your handy Totoro. No, this is one side of a die, and it's completely flat, fake core. Uh, so it's you know it's one way to do it. And then there are plus signs which you can feel. Very nice. And signs which you can feel. So fake core is actually pretty accessible because of the dice that it uses. Awesome. So definitely something to keep in mind uh, if you're running a game that already exists. Um, maybe pick one that's already yeah. accessible. Pick one that's more accessible. But if you really want to play Dungeons & Dragons and you're blind, it is possible to hack the game and make it accessible. It just might take more time. I mean, hell, you can build tactile maps if you want to. Yeah. It just takes... It's it's going to take a little bit of, of dedication and I mean, the, the desire to do this thing, but, I mean, that's why you're playing in the first place, right? So I, I always ask, when people ask me, um, is it possible to make these games accessible? My response is, well, how much of a nerd are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many people build out, like, 3D maps just for fun anyway? Exactly. 
So if, you know, if you're super into this game, it's possible to make it really accessible and really fun. And also it's fun for the, for the non-disabled players, too, because you get to do things that are a little bit more interactive. Yeah, there you go. What we were talking about um, earlier, you know, thing, making things accessible can lead to more people enjoying it and having fun and pulling other people in. Maybe you've got some friends that weren't going to play before, but now they've seen all the cool stuff you built and it looks so much more enticing. You just made a new gamer. So, And also, you know, bringing people with disabilities into your games means that, hey, you interact with people with disabilities and you're not doing it out of the charity of your nice little heart because <laughs> you want a game. Yeah. So that was the, the, the harder version. So other things to consider um, in game design... For the folks that, that are listening that are designing their own game or they're going a little bit deeper in their, their hack and their mod on, you know, whatever system they're willing to put in, we know they're willing to put in um, a lot more time and effort on you know, designing books and pamphlets and, you know, whatever else we need. Um, you mentioned fonts earlier, that that's, that's a definitely a big thing to, to consider um, from the, the visual aspect of things. What else can we consider when building a game? Um, well, also, just having characters with disabilities as playable and not useless would be great. <laughs> There's a lot of games out there that have disability as a flaw or as something that you take in order to get more points to make your character more awesome. Mm -hmm. World of Darkness, I'm looking at you. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's not really that great <laughs> because it encourages people to take a disability and then not role-play it. I've seen that so often. Somebody will take blind or deaf, and then they'll just get it magicked out as soon as they can, but they use the points to get, you know, more points. Mm -hmm. So I really encourage people who are building their own games to look at disability and see how it fits into the world that they're building. Because people with disabilities are everywhere. I mean, like we were saying at the beginning, you know, there are people with disabilities who are in their 30s or in their 20s mm -hmm. who are around and being people in their 20s or 30s. Mm -hmm. um, so there are characters with disabilities in the worlds that you're creating. You just have to think about where they are. Um, in Dead Scare, that meant doing an entire section that I wrote on how to weaponize wheelchairs and white canes and, you know, what adaptive devices in the 1950s look like once you've attached, say, a sharp thing to them. <laughs> very, very scary. That's, that's what they look like. Oh, my gosh. It's true. Especially <laughs> wheelchairs in that era were also just massive and kind of indestructible. So, yeah, I, my mind immediately jumped to uh, prosthetics. They were not necessarily well, lightweight and nice as they are today. There's actually a note in Dead Scare about prosthetics that um, whenever people run across it, they get really excited. Because if you have a prosthetic arm or leg and the Zeds bite it, they're not going to be able to infect you. Oh, that's true. I just thought about them as, like, clubs. I didn't even think about the... Um, vectors? The, the built-in immunity there. That's that's nice. See? There, there's these all kinds that's of great advantages by, by role-playing correctly. <laughs> yeah, which is why I'm writing the Fate Accessibility Toolkit. Hashtag shameless plug. Um... Yeah, no, that's cool. That's that's half the reason for for having you on is we're gonna get in all of your plugs. 
Yep. So, I mean, the Food Accessibility Toolkit, which is what I'm working on right now with Evil Hat, mm -hmm. is entirely about helping regular gamers who are not disabled be able to play disabled characters in Fate Core without being insulting. Nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Oh, and I, I just want to, I've listened to and played lots of games, and there are also some choices that people might not realize that they're choosing to play a disabled character. Uh, the one I'm thinking of in particular is uh, is albinism. That gets picked a lot as an aesthetic choice. Yeah. Um, FYI, it comes with a disability. People yeah. should know that. So, I'm, And I'm sure there are others that fall into that category where people are choosing it more for the look of something uh, and not really considering how that's really going to affect their character I mean, another one actually is what my disability, which is cat cataracts. Mm. Um, cataracts get used a lot in uh, art, um, and it's a lot of evil people having weird-looking eyes, which is not super great for me or really for anybody else. Because um, I grew up, you, when you're disabled and you're a kid, there's a lot of you experience a lot of the tropes that have been written about your disability without you ever participating in them. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I when I was growing up, a lot of people would call me an evil witch. <laughs> I definitely had classmates who would make the sign of the cross at me because they thought my eye meant that I was evil. These things are not helpful or conducive to proper socialization. I'm sure that you had some stuff because of albinism. Mm -hmm. And, and little do they know that we're just evil for other reasons. I mean... Yeah, nobody was saying, oh, Elsa, you're evil because you plan to smash the patriarchy when you grow up. <laughs> Nothing was accurate. <laughs> Gosh, if they had only gotten to know you, then they would know the real reasons. <laughs> yeah, it's... So when you're reinforcing those tropes, you're actually hurting real people. So it's important to think about that and maybe even revise the way that you play games. And I hear a lot of people say, oh, but you're being too sensitive. Really not. No. Like, it's the issue of if you're going to play a character and someone says, hey, you know what, it really bothers me that you're playing blindness as someone who can't see anything and is being really stupid and running into walls, you're actually reinforcing some really harmful stereotypes and are causing things like, some woman walking up to me on the street and grabbing my hand because she thinks I can't cross the street by myself. Oh, no. Oh, they, they mean so well, and yet... That's exactly right. It's causing these misconceptions. Because you are, we, the characters with disabilities are, they either are completely incompetent or they're your favorite, Daredevil. <laughs> oh, I just made Elsa very sad. <laughs> are we going to talk about that now? We can if you want. Do you, do you need to? Or we can skip it. Okay, I'm going to do the 30-second version. Everybody who's listening to this has probably seen the new Netflix Daredevil. Mm -hmm. Everybody in my community has seen the new Netflix Daredevil. And I want you all to imagine Elsa sitting down with some scotch, wrapping herself up in a nice warm blanket and saying, you know what, it's time to watch Daredevil. This is going to be great. I haven't gotten to watch anything with a blind superhero ever, because the Ben Affleck movie is not something we speak of. Um, what was that about Braille in the credits? I don't think I want to talk about that. <laughs> um, so I'm watching it by myself, because my husband wasn't interested, and he was upstairs playing a video game. Mm -hmm. From downstairs, he hears me start swearing. 
a lot. Because here's the thing. Matt Murdock throws his cane into an alleyway about 26 times over the course of this show. Now, mm-hmm. let me tell you how much a white cane costs. A white cane costs around 45 to $50. If Matt Murdock is really some sad sack attorney who has a tiny, tiny, tiny office that he can barely afford, how on earth is he paying for a $50 cane once a week? And also, I want to know where he's getting the Braille prints from, because he sure as hell can't afford them. No, yeah, all the, the documents that you're going to need for a legal case, that's a lot of printing. It is. Well, and it's also just, if you're reading them in Braille, that mm-hmm. takes forever. How are you both fighting crime and reading Braille documents that are legally not relevant? Use text-to-speech software, guys. Yeah, why, I, that's that's a really good point. I'm surprised they didn't do any of that. Why, I, does does the big stacks of braille paper maybe make a better visual for people? I realize that's a terrible thing to be going for in a show about blind people, but especially for a show about blind people, that's questionable. Um, I did also think it was weird that he was using a braille output display. Oh yeah. Well, because so so many people our age were we're the ADA generation. Hmm. Yeah. The ADA generation has a lot of access to technology that previous te- uh, generations didn't because of our schooling and because of what schools are required to support us with. Mm-hmm. Braille output displays are both very expensive, but they're also kind of outdated. I don't know a lot of people who use them at this point. Most people are using text-to-speech or speech-to-text software, and most people are using, you know, audiobooks, frankly. Some, some kind of audio format, yeah. I think... I think the only Braille display, like I, I encountered one or two when I was young and, you know, just, just sort of figuring out what I really needed. So I, I ended up not learning Braille. Um, but I think the only one I've seen in the last couple of years is there was a very small one uh, attached to this woman's iPad she was showing me. It was pretty cool. Yeah, but I mean, that's way more common. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, those are relatively new if they're attached to an iPad, because those are ones that can stick onto your iPad with a USB. Mm-hmm. He was using, like, an actual Braille output display. Yeah, that thing was not small. <laughs> no, it was just one of those things where it was like, have you... Did, I know they had a blind consultant, mm-hmm. but I kind of feel like they didn't use the blind consultant. Yeah, it's like they updated everything else about Daredevil's timeline except his technology. And his disability. Well, yeah, yeah, in, in his technology in relation to that disability, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It was very weird. I thought I'd gone back to the 1990s when I was, you know, a tiny blind kid, mm-hmm. and I was learning about all of these large, hinky devices that sort of worked. Yeah, I don't know. It's a super weird show. <laughs> yeah, it was, all the stuff with Wilson Fisk was great, but every time Matt Murdock came on the screen, I kind of wanted to smack something. <laughs> yeah, probably him. So, so anyway, uh, yeah, cool. That was, <laughs> that was our daredevil tangent. Um, so we, we've talked a lot about tools and things for the vision impaired. Um, I know we talked briefly at Metatopia about some other things for um, hearing impairments. Uh, I think you were mentioning sign language. Oh, um, yeah, that's about com- cons and conferences. So one mm-hmm. of the things that I'm encouraging people to do is to, if they run a con, to start um looking into sign language interpreters for panels. Mm. But uh, the Illuminati has um, a series up that's sign language for RPGs. Bill Paulson is teaching 
basic ASL on in YouTube videos for RPG stuff. Awesome. Yeah, so, something else that we will definitely have a link to. Counting. Um, I think he's got the basic terms for role-playing games, that kind of stuff. Awesome. I mean, I, I talked have... at Metatopia about physical impairments, too, and I talked about LARP, which I don't want to get into too much today, but the short version is, is that if you have a LARP, you should be making it inclusive and accessible. And if you're not, then not only do you have an issue because you're not welcoming all players into your games, but you also have a legal issue. Mm. So, uh, highly recommend looking into where you're holding your LARPs and making sure that they are ADA accessible. And if you have a LARP with buffers, I highly recommend considering uh, creating low vision rules. Um, and something that I recommended at the panel that you were at was that if you, at the beginning of your LARP, make an announcement saying that uh, disability, any adaptive devices that players are using should sort of be pointed out and said, these are real things, do not touch them, do not play with them, yeah. do not take them away from the players who use them. Because I have had my cane taken away by a player in game before. They thought it was a character choice. Yeah. And I was like, no, that's my actual cane, give it back. <laughs> and a lot of people use canes as a character choice, like walking canes, but it should definitely be pointed out that, you know, while they might look really cool, you're also playing with a dis you're also playing a character with a disability at that point, and it should reflect what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And and LARPing is something that I don't have much experience with. Um, is there generally like a period at the beginning where you can kind of say, okay, like when you're doing, hey, here's the rules. Also have like, also here's the things you don't touch. Like, th does that kind of yeah. fit honestly in? Okay. Because we, we usually make announcements about like how to get out of a scene that you're not comfortable with, uh, what the ground rules are, like no touching, that kind of stuff. So it's very easy to put that into the announcement. Awesome. Okay. And, and that actually reminded me, something that's sort of tangentially accessibility related in, in terms of games and something that was new to me uh, at, at Metatopia just recently was um, the X card. Should we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so the X card was created by John Stavrolopoulos. Mm-hmm. I'm really sorry, John. I have a hard time pronouncing your last name. Um, but he basically created this thing where it's a way to tap out of a scene if you're uncomfortable. Like for me, uh, when I play Bluebeard's Bride, I always tell the GM I don't do super well with eyeball squick. But mm -hmm. if it gets too close to that, I can just put my hand on the X card. We don't have to have a conversation about why eyeball squick makes me nervous. And yeah. we can move on. It's, it's basically a, a mental health safety thing, which I think is part of accessibility because people with mental illnesses do exist and uh, are playing games and should be respected. And through you and you're not wanting to respect trigger warnings, people. Yeah, yeah, and it really helps save them from having to have the same conversation over and over and over with people who very well may be strangers, too. Yeah, it's like, you know, if you have a background of sexual assault, you don't want to necessarily play in a game with sexual assault. And you also may not want to tell a table full of strangers about your life experience. No. So I highly recommend using the X card, even if it's just writing an X on an index card, which is what I do, and just making sure that your players feel comfortable. Yeah, just have it there 
Um, if you guys are, everybody's playing around a table, just have it within reach of all of the players. So that I, I found even just having it there as an option seems to make people more conscientious players and, and just knowing that they can, can do that, can have, can have that out really helps. Well, I think it also is sort of a mindfulness thing. Mm-hmm. Like players can feel more comfortable because they feel like they're being, players think about it more, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about a lot of different aids and tools um, and something that if it's not already up on the podcast Tumblr will be, um, there's going to be a permanent link at the top with all the other permanent links up there. Um, That's a, a kind of a catch-all for all these accessibility resources for people, um, specific resources like the, like the video series you were mentioning, tools like that, and also some, some more general things like uh, ADA information for people who don't know it, guidelines for web accessibility for people who are considering part or all of their game um, being web-based or having any kind of game information, really, any website that you're building to, to tell, talk more about your game needs to be compliant with people's tools. So all that stuff will be there. And it's something that I'd like to keep adding to and keep growing. So if anybody who's listening was like, oh, that's really cool, but you didn't mention um, this this thing that I use all the time and it's super great. You know, send them send them our way. We're going to keep this list growing as a resource for, for players and GMs and designers and anybody. To have I'll that. also mention, uh, <laughs> for those of you who are designers, I do consultancy work, uh, helping people both develop their games to include disability in their world building, but I also do, you know, is your game accessible? I charge a nominal fee to look over your game and say, oh, these things need to change for this to be readable by a low vision player. Nice. Yes. Hire Elsa to look over your game. She is an expert and will bring many, many more players to your game. I will. It's true. I am worth the money. Yeah, absolutely. You, I think you, you gave us a couple stories at the at the show about um, things that you've worked on. Like, what are what are some common things that you find? Uh, is it usually just like font and color choices, or font and color choices? It's stuff like you know, um, I, I have a lot of people send me stuff that has handwriting fonts. Hmm. Yeah. Be, well, if you want to use that, this that's great, but you need to have a PDF that's screen reader accessible because otherwise people can't read it. Um. I can't even read handwriting fonts. So aesthetic choices are really challenging because on the one hand, you still want your book to look pretty, but on the other hand, you want it to be accessible. Yeah, that that is a struggle. Coming from a background in graphic design, it can be difficult to marry the two things, Have have it look exactly artistically the way you want it to look, but then also be able to read it when you're done would be great. Right, and so I think that there's a lot of just, um, there's a lot of learning to do because I think that accessibility can be beautiful. You just, you have to shift what you immediately think of when you think of something that's like, oh, that would look really pretty and aesthetically pleasing in this book. It's like, well, okay, but. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I say it's it's hard, but it absolutely can be done. It just takes a little love and attention, maybe a different thought. Yep. Awesome. So you have a game that is out. And if people have not yet listened to the one shot episodes of it, they should. You've got Dead Scare. I do. It's not out yet. Um, hopefully by the time this airs, it will be, but you know. Oh, cool. Okay. So soon, soon you'll be able to play it. Go listen to James and everybody else play it on, on one shot. It's, it's a very fun, fun sounding game. And I keep wanting to write it as Dead Scream, but it's not a... You know, a lot of people probably feel that way because I do tend to, um, 
whenever I run it for a convention game or for a one shot, like I did for one shot, mm-hmm. it's more deadly than it has to be. Oh my god! There, and and there was there was I won't spoil it. There was there was things in the in the show. Go listen, go listen to the show. Um, but finish listening to this. First. Go listen to the show after you listen to this. Be aware yeah. that the show that you might go listen to after this, there were flaming zombies. It is spooky. Don't listen to it uh, in the dark by yourself. Um, so you actually, one of the things I wanted to ask about, you mentioned on the show that you don't like zombies. What possessed you to make a zombie game? All right. My husband, I can feel my husband from several towns away cringing because every time that I tell this story, he feels like he's getting blamed for something. And it's only sort of true. Um, my husband is really into zombies. Mm-hmm. My husband loves Night of the Walking Dead, Living Dead, sorry, Night of the Living Dead. He Wait, loved no. the Walking Dead show. In fact, so much that he made me play it, watch it with him. And uh, as I am watching The Walking Dead, I am seeing all of these women with very little self-possession, very little things, very few things to do. Mm-hmm. They're all getting killed or killing themselves because they don't want to be Zeds. I was thinking, why? Why is it that every single zombie thing I watch or read about is not about women? Why are there no strong female characters in these shows? And, you know, it's... It's a genre issue. Mm-hmm. And yes, I know about Michonne, and Michonne is great, but I would like to have more than one female character in a television show who doesn't suck. <laughs> yeah, one so, one does not hold up against how many thousands of... There's so much zombie media. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's Mira Grant's feed series, which has some really awesome female characters. But again, it's, you know, it's one in a thousand. Mm-hmm. So I started kind of looking at this and thinking, huh, that's interesting. There really isn't anything that's female-centric. And then my historian brain kicked in. And we should all be afraid when my historian brain kicks in because I make things that, you know, maybe I shouldn't. We'll talk about what my next project is after this. And um, I realized that nobody had ever really made a game about zombies other than, or any kind of media about zombies, other than Pride and Prejudice with Zombies that was set in the past. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, well, well, that's really interesting. I wonder what would happen if, say, there were zombies in, I don't know, the 1920s during rum running. Not that. Because this is what my brain does. Mm-hmm. But, wait a minute. I should make a role-playing game about this. And then I remembered a friend of mine and I joking about the idea of housewives fighting zombies. Oh, yes. And then I pieced the 1950s together with that joke. Perfect. And that really what I needed to do was write a game set in the 1950s with the backdrop of the Soviet Cold War yeah. and make the president because that causes me to fear things. <laughs> Zombies and dead scare don't scare me, scare me nearly as much yeah. as Joseph Murphy as president. Oh my god. Oh, so, so the fact that it's about zombies is only sort of a small part of the story here. Yes. It is scary for so many other reasons. You should all be really afraid of when you, when, wait, if your GM ever lets you survive to the second reconstruction period, <laughs> which I hope they do because I hope people play in the second half of the game. Because mm-hmm. the fir- the way that Dead Scare works is the first half of the game is during the outbreak, and everybody's trying to survive and keep their towns intact. But after about 15 days in the game, mm-hmm. which hopefully you survive that long, 
the National Guard rolls in. Oh, okay. And I think I think the guys in one shot they only got through the first like just the beginning really. They're still in the outbreak. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot that can happen, and I mean I've run games that take place in DC mm-hmm. after the second Reconstruction period begins. Ooh. Okay. And I have to tell you that running the games that take place after the outbreak are really fascinating because they're about the politics. There are Zeds that you have to fight mm-hmm. because they're still out there. But a lot of what ends up happening is talking about how to rebuild the country with this crazy person, essentially. I know he's not crazy. He's dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Very dangerous politician in control. When, when you and run like that do you bring them through the um the outbreak first or do you start them i've never had the chance because i've never run a full campaign okay it's something i really want to do. yeah I I, but I, I, very hard to get to the outbreak it sounds like too so i've done so much play testing that you know it's like i've had to play test both sides but i've never got to run a full campaign i think at some point i want to do that and maybe do it as a podcast because i think it would be really fun to do a dead scare full game Ooh, yeah. And and when Dead Scare does finally come out and it's playable, I expect it's uh, fully accessible to all yeah. <laughs> all players. Yeah. It is. Um, actually, layout has been really tricky, and that's part of why it's taking so long. Hmm. Because um, we have to make sure that everything is accessible in both book format and in PDF format. And so there's been a lot of just making sure that things work. So that's part of why it's taking so long is because we want this to really be accessible to people with low vision, and that's really important to me. Absolutely, and it's it's definitely going to be worth it. Yeah, for all the extra time put in. So look forward to that. Uh, and you hinted at another project. Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? <laughs> uh, I think you're going to get to Hamilton at some point. So I am working on a game called Give Us Liberty. Okay, which set in the American Revolution, and it is about playing American revolutionaries fighting for the birth of their new country. Oh, wow. But without zombies this time. No zombies this time. Good. Actually, no magic at all. Ooh, all right. Uh, This is is a historically accurate... (laughs) (laughs) The the air quotes here, yeah. (laughs) Um, I am hiring a historian to work on it, uh... Besides me, I am a fully trained historian, but I, I am hoping to hire a historian to do um, the maritime section because there will be naval battles. Ooh, yeah. All right. Uh, my One of my best friends is my former history professor, and he specializes in pirates in early American history, and I want him to write it, part of it, that chapter. Awesome. Um, but I've been working on stuff like character creation and some of the rules. And, I mean, this game... Mm-hmm. Everybody who loves Hamilton is probably going to jump on me with and puppy pile me with happiness because of some of the roles that I've written in. <laughs> Yay. I'll be in that pile. <laughs> For example, in character creation, you must pick whether you're a loyalist or a revolutionary. Excellent. For example, there are dual mechanics. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And the duels can be adjudicated in a number of ways, because I'm going to be putting physical rules into the game, as well as traditional dice rules. Oh, like for people to actually fight? 
Yeah. Oh no. Because Nerf pistols are a thing. Yes. So if you choose to use the live action rules for dueling, mm-hmm. there are ten duel commandments. In <laughs> oh, good. Well, it'll be something like that. Yeah. I can't say too much because it's still in development, and I don't want to disappoint anybody. But the idea is that this will be the kind of thing that you know you can both stay at the table, but you can also get up off away from the table and have a duel or. Mm-hmm cabinet battle or <laughs> oh that's wonderful and so this is something that you're you're just starting out on yes um i so again you know my history with american revolution the, the american revolution is not just so when i was 11 years old i was kind of a precocious little brat and i picked up a book about john adams and ended up devouring it within about two days mm-hmm. like you do and then i went and read everything I possibly could about John Adams in the early American Revolutionary period. I had a birthday party that was American Revolution themed. This is how much of a nerd I am. So when Hamilton came out on NPR, I I hadn't been able to see it. I kept trying to go see it at the public and I could never get a ticket. Mm-hmm. I finally listened to the music and I basically wept my way through the show. Mm-hmm. It, completely revived my love of history. Oh, yay. And it reminded me that I make games about history because I want people to love history too. Give Us Liberty is sort of my love letter to an era that is now being loved by more people than just me. And this is going to sound super hipster, but I loved the American Revolution before everybody else did. (laughs) Yeah, okay. It's a little hipster, but I definitely believe it. Um, I did Revolutionary War reenactments. I, I currently volunteer at the Hamilton Schuyler House part-time, doing historical interpretation for people who come visit the house. Uh, yes, I work in the house where Hamilton and Elizabeth Schuyler got engaged. Yay. Y'all are jealous. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it's an era that's rife not just with, with sort of story and excitement, but Hamilton the musical really does have a lot of um, things to latch onto that speak to me as a disabled person. How so? And so I I want to make this game because I think that it will cause a lot of people to have a lot of fun with history. But mm-hmm. I also hope that they'll learn something by playing it. Awesome! Yeah, I I hope so too. As somebody who the only class I ever failed was a history class, um, I I really appreciate all attempts like Hamilton and like other things and, and like games like that you're working on to make history interesting and accessible and fun because that's the only way I'm going to learn it. Yeah, and I mean one of the things that the game um, one of the things that the game is going to do is it's going to show people parts of history that they wouldn't get from Hamilton or from a history book. Because there is no way that most people on the planet are going to read City of Women. City of Women is a book that's entirely about uh, women's work in New York City in the early 1800s. Um, I've read it. I can then extrapolate by looking at the bibliography, go back about 10 years, look at the stuff for the American Revolution, and women will have a large role in this game. There are going to be full sections about gender and how to play a woman who's a spy. There were actually quite a lot of them, because if you could get a British officer to sleep with you... Ah, there you go. It was the other way around. Uh, Aaron Burr fell in love with the wife of a British officer. Go There's some it. information there. 
So women will have a very large role. There were women who were on the battlefield. There were women manning uh, guns. There were women writing information to and fro. Uh, Elizabeth Schuyler's mother torched her own grain fields rather than having the British take their grain. Oh, wow. You know, it's an era that is rife for the role-playing, and I think that people will really enjoy it. I hope, because when I kickstart it, I'm hoping that I'll make enough money to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I hope so, too. So something to look forward to and for us to all keep an eye out for. Um, and yes, uh, apparently Lin-Manuel Miranda is a super nerd, and I will probably be delivering a copy to him, because apparently this is the kind of thing he would love. Oh, like he would. He, oh, he's he's such an excitable guy already. I can just imagine how like that. Yeah, so I'm gonna try once I have a playtestable draft. I'm gonna try and get him. I, I made this game, and you kind of helped me make it happen. So, um, you want to play it? Oh man, <laughs> you can bet she'll run a good game. All right, so we've got a little insight on the games that you are making, um, and that are in progress. Are uh, is there what kind of games do you like to play as a as a player? I, you know, it's funny, I don't, the kind of games that I make are pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a horror writer, that's what I do. <laughs> but uh, I really like playing fun, goofy games. It, it's but a nice, also, nice pace, change of pace. I also really like deception games. Um, like, uh, like, like werewolf kind of games, or like? Like werewolf kind of games, I really like them. Um... I also do really like Bluebeard's Bride, and even though it's super dark and super hard to play, I really appreciate the kind of thought that the creators have put into it to make a game where everybody has to be one person. Yeah. Which is something that I really enjoyed, even though I don't think I ever want to play it with men again, because I've played with men now, and I I think I only want to play it in a woman-only group. Yeah, for people who don't who aren't familiar with Bluebird's Bride, you're playing aspects of this one woman. Um so that that does kind of make make sense to play, you know, like it's in, to my understanding at least of of um of the game and of the story, the fact that she is a woman is pretty important. Uh I'm I'm yeah. sure that you could maybe change it if if you wanted to, but like the the, the read that I got on it was like this is who this person is. It's important that this is who this person is. Um, and so playing it with other women gives you kind of a, an interesting. It does. Which is cool. Cause we don't have a lot of games that are like, man, ladies need to play this. <laughs> yeah. That's very much this game. Like yeah. it's one of the games that I really want to get women to latch onto and run it as often as I can for groups of women. Um, because I think it's really important. For women to play this game because it does highlight abuse, um, the, the way that women react to abuse, mm. a way that I think is really valuable for us to kind of engage with and understand, yeah. which is really hard, but I think it's worth looking at, especially if you've never been in an abusive situation, actually, I think mostly, because it might alter the way that you look at some of the relationships that you've had in the past. Mm-hmm and see where there were toxic dynamics so that you can change the way that you interact with people in the future. And that's going to be available for play pretty soon, too. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be cool. Uh, I'm looking forward to experiencing that and and, uh, and seeing what, 
what that really is all about. Because that, that was something that they were playtesting in Metatopia, and I I opted to play a different game, which I'm not sad about. I don't regret it, but this will be cool. So do we have any uh, listener questions you wanted to get to? We do. Here we go. Um, so our first listener question um, is in regard to Dead Scare. So they ask, in designing a Powered by Apocalypse game like Dead Scare, how did you ensure that it would be sufficiently different from other games of that general mechanical structure? Is it mostly in the unique setting that you chose, or is it more about um, finding ways to manipulate the, the basic mechanics of that system? So for one, it's different because you're only playing women and children. Yeah, there you go. Um, which I don't know of many other games that do that. Mm-mm. I'm not going to say only because then I'll get my ass kicked on the internet. Um, but yeah. it's also in some of the mechanics. Um, in Dead Scare, there are opposed player roles, which is something that's really important. Um, Apocalypse World tends to have sort of, I, I hate to say force mechanics, but in some ways that is what happens. Like with Monster Hearts, there were mechanics that can cause you to overpower a player's want, other players' wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't want that in Dead Scare because it's already such a violent game, and there's so much external force. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much hostility. I felt like it was really important to have players have some kind of autonomy, even if they can get coerced. So there are um, there are opposed roles. If you don't want something to happen to your character, you can roll against it to say no. That felt really important within Dead Scare. And I've had a lot of people after playtests say, this fixed Apocalypse World for me. I didn't like not being able to have a say in what happens. Oh, wow. Okay. There you go. So that's for uh, um, other people who are modifying games out there, something to, to consider in your your Apocalypse, Powered by Apocalypse mods. And I mean, I think it depends on the game, because Dead Scare is a unique setting. Mm-hmm. And it is a unique way of playing. It, it definitely is. And and again, I'll, I'll say it yet again. If you haven't listened to people play it on one shot, they do a really good job uh, of walking through. And you get kind of a sense for how, how those opposed roles work and what that really does to the to the play itself. It does. And I think it does change. I think it makes it a better horror game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it's, it's very scary just as a, as a spectator on this one. Also, I forgot to mention, there's also the courage mechanic. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? I was really proud of myself when I came up with this. Uh, it was the first mechanic that I ever came up with, and I realized it worked. Um, I wanted to replicate what happens in a horror movie mm-hmm. when somebody gets scared, and then they get more scared because they're scared. And the only way that they can get better is to feel safe. And so what happens is that you roll a courage, you roll for courage. And if you lose that courage roll, then all of your skills are at a negative one. Every single roll that you take is at a minus one until you feel safe again. Lose your courage rolls. Oh no! <laughs> so it can spiral. Yeah, which which absolutely could happen. I I think if I were being pursued by zombies, it would spiral very quickly. Right. And so that's really, that was one of the things that I wanted to have, was that I wanted people to actually get scared. I wanted their characters to get scared. Because these are these are normal people in a terrifying situation. These are not people who were trained, you know. They're, they're, they're not military. They're not trained to do these things. It's, yeah. Yeah. 
All right, one one last user question the, to take us back to um, earlier topics in the podcast. Um, so how do you bring up questions about accessibility or disability in your group, especially if you're playing with new players without making anybody uncomfortable? Um, I think you just make it a house rule. You, you know, if it's your home game, mm-hmm. then at every game, especially if you're bringing in new people, you just say, hey, I don't need you to tell me your life story. Mm-hmm. But I want to make sure my game is inclusive. So if you have anything that you need, please let me know before we start playing. Yeah. And I think you do it at con games. This is my table. If you have any disability needs, if you have any mental health needs, please let me know. I think part of that is normalizing disability at the table. I think right now it's uncomfortable for people because we don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge it. We don't look at it. Mm-hmm. We normalize the idea that people with disabilities are at our gaming tables. That becomes less uncomfortable. And just to to add a little bit to that, I know a lot of resources out there for GMs and people who are running games and stuff like that um, do put a lot of emphasis on, especially for longer running games, really talking one-on-one with your players about the direction they want their character to go and things that they want to have happen. And I think that could really easily be part of that conversation. Throw it in there like, hey, we're going to talk about your character and we're going to then what they want. We're going to talk about what you want and what you need. And always make it about the player and not about you. It's not about your comfort level. It's about player with disabilities needs. Totally. That's one thing that I get a lot is people being like, well, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with X. And I'm like, well, it's not really up to you. <laughs> like something I actually get a lot of flack for. Um, I talked about this at Metatopia. I don't know if you were at this panel, but um, I ask all of my players to use large print dice when I run Dead Scare so that I can see their roles. And I've had some people get really mad at me because they're like, but I want my dice. Well, I'm sorry, but your dice are tiny and I can't read them. Yeah, players get very particular about their dice. Like there are like they have actual magic powers. And I while that's cute and I and I get it, like sometimes you just need to to be okay with using something else. Let go of the precious dice. Yeah. I that I haven't magic your dice so that you can die in my game. <laughs> uh, All right. Well, that about covers it. So if people want to find you online to look at your cool, cool games or hire you to do cool things to their games, um, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at Snarkbat, S-N-A-R-K-B-A-T on Twitter. You can find me uh, at feministsonar.com, which, yes, it's a blind joke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can find me at elsa at storium.com. That's my email address for work. Cool. All right. And we'll, we'll have links to those, too, so you can find Elsa and have her help you make cool stuff. I am all about making the cool stuff. That's what we, what we aim for. Thank you again so much for being on and talking to us about all of this. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thanks again to Elsa for being on the show. Be sure that you follow her somewhere on the internet to stay updated on Dead Scare and her other projects. And be sure that you follow Modifier. We are at Modifier Podcast um, basically everywhere. Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Gmail, however you want to follow us, get on it. Might I recommend modifierpodcast.tumblr.com for complete episode summaries, photos, um, and the accessibility resource list in particular. Modifier is super proud to be part of the One Shot Podcast Network that you can find at oneshotpodcast.com as well as at oneshotrpg on Twitter. Our theme music was created by the mega-talented Cat Greenfield, friend to Bothans everywhere, who you can find more about at catgreenfield.com. 
On the next modifier, we talk Edge of the Empire and Mass Effect. Be there.